In the words of E.M. Bounds in his wonderful little book titled Power Through Prayer, he expresses some, some words that I've always deeply been moved by. The first time, many years ago, I found this. And I quote him, Preaching, he says, is not the performance of an hour. It is the outflow of a life. It takes 20 years to make a sermon because it takes 20 years to make the man. The true sermons is a thing of life. The sermon grows because the man grows. The sermon is forceful because the man is forceful. The sermon is holy because the man is holy. The sermon is full of the divine unction because the man is full of the divine unction. The preaching man is to be the praying man. Prayer is the preacher's mightiest weapon. An almighty force in itself, it gives life and force to all. The real sermon is made in the closet. The man, God's man, is made in the closet. His life and his profoundest convictions were born in his secret communion with God. The burdened and tearful agony of his spirit, his weightiest and sweetest messages were God when alone with God. Indeed, he says, prayer makes the man. Prayer makes the preacher. Prayer makes the pastor. My task by God's grace this morning is not so much to convince you of how necessary prayer is, for I know we're convinced by this already. For God in his providence has ordained that the ver- our very salvation should happen when we call upon the name of the Lord. Calvin commenting on the necessity of prayer, and remembering, of course, that prayer is perhaps the longest chapter in the Institutes. So, can do away with this thing that, you know, it's only a certain, certain pockets of the Christian church that is concerned about prayer. But he speaks here at length um, in his chapter 20 about prayer when he affirms we invoke the presence both of his providence, speaking about the necessity of prayer, we invoke the presence both of his providence through which he watches over and guards our affairs and of his power through which he sustains us, weak as we are and well nigh overcome and of his goodness through which he receives us, miserably burdened with sins unto grace. And in short, it is by prayer that we call him to reveal himself as holy presence to us. It is by prayer that we call him to reveal himself as holy presence to us. This connection between prayer, prayer of invocation and the presence of God, Perhaps none better than the Apostle Paul knew about this necessity of prayer. This empowering presence of God in a special way. 
And it is plain to see in Paul's ministry that his ministry is suffused with all kinds of prayer. We find prayers of supplication, we find prayers of invocation, prayers of intercession, prayers of praise and worship, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers for the move of God's spirit in the lives of believers. Prayers for God's special empowerment in the communication of the gospel. In Ephesians 6, verse 19 to 20, he says, he asked the, 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 the church to pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words be, may be given to me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I, I am an ambassador in, in chains. Pray that, he says, pray that I may fearlessly declare as I should. Even in chains, Paul is confident in this prayer and can trust the work of God to use his circumstances in the communication, in the propagation of the gospel. We find other kinds of ways he insists upon this necessity of prayer when in um, Philippians 1, verse 16 to 20, he, he, he speaks about um, what then notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice. Yea, I will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. The words we find expressed um, by E.M. Bounds was really aiming at this observable decline in prayer. There's a decline in the spiritual intensity and fervency that only comes to a church on its knees. A church on its knees not because it has capitulated to the latest trends in the marketplace of culture, but on its knees because the very life, its very life is defined by prayer. Because it kneels alone before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And so it is constantly enlivened by the fires of the Spirit. It is indeed a fearful thing when we, perhaps many times unconsciously, slip into the comfort of methodologies and systems. When we reduce the work of the Spirit to the execution of systems and tried procedures, It was what D.A. Carson, um, in his very helpful book, uh, Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, described as our being better at, quote, organizing than agonizing. Better at administering than interceding. Better at fellowship than fasting. Better at entertainment than worship better at theological articulation than spiritual adoration. 
And then he ends, better God help us at preaching than praying. Now, these are not to discount the, other, the, 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 the previous things in the relations he, he draws here. But to say, are we forgetting something? Are we missing something? Are we missing the very power source? The very thing that enlivens and works through us, the Spirit of God. When we come to this text and to the prayer that Paul um, articulates here, we meet a Paul who is in chains as he writes to the church at, at Ephesus, where about seven years prior, he had spent a significant um, amount of time in labor in the gospel, in building their faith. It was that same Ephesus that you remember Paul. Um, we meet, um, Paul has, had, had, um, has said, that a great door was open, a great and effectual is open unto me, a great door and effectual is open unto me, but there are many adversaries. In 1 Corinthians 16, he, he exclaims, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? A great door is open. There are adversaries. It was, Ephesus was a place that he recognized would take the special working of the power of God to resist opposition to the gospel. Ephesians, the book of the epistle, is in fact a place where Paul's prayer life is on particular display. From the first chapter of the letter already, we see the insistent uh, persistence with which Paul prays for the brethren. In verse 16, he, he, he exclaimed, I have not ceased to give thanks for you. I have not ceased to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He prays especially that they would be, that they would, um, that they will come to a deep knowing of the hope of their calling and the, rich, and the riches, the plenteous abundance of his glory, as well as the incomparably great power that God has made available to those who believe. In the same breath, lest, we, lest they imagine that this power is along the lines of corrupt powers of this world, or even the dark spiritual powers of evil, that's a, a category of power that we mustn't forget. The dark and real powers of evil. But he hastens to root the power he's talking about in the supremacy of the risen Christ. It is specifically the power that God himself and God alone exercises. The power that God exerted, as we saw, in conquering the ultimate enemy, death. In spoiling principalities and making an open and triumphant spectacle of them. It's the victory that is obtained in Christ that allows us to exclaim, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And as Paul prays, it's almost as if Paul wanders from praying into the mode of theological doctrinal discourse. And he begins from his prayer to elaborate the theological foundations for his praying. 
He anchors this. He anchors the, 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 the confidence of believers in the victories of Christ and their being in him. Christ's victory over sin, over the devil, over the flesh. We see that in chapters 2 verse 1 to 10. He elaborates the great mystery of God's eternal plan in the gospel to overcome the alienation of both Jew and Gentile. And you know this is a this one of the big themes of, 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 the, of the letter. And to reconcile them equally to himself in Christ under a new administration. It is God's new creation of a spiritual temple created in Christ and fitted for the good works that God ordained for us. Paul insists upon this reality. He this reality of the temple, the being built, that's being built by God himself, whose chief cornerstone is Christ. And you see that in verse, chapter 2, verse 22. For in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In this, Paul certainly teaches us that the substance of prayer the fount from which petitions to God must spring is the word of God. It is the content of God's own activity that informs and energizes how we pray. In chapter 3, where our text is drawn from, we see Paul further tie this, he ties in even more strongly this continuity between prayer and doctrinal foundations. Doctrinal foundations that are inspired, that are from the work of God himself. And so when he opens this, 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 uh, this section, this pericope that we, we're looking at, verse 14, he talks about for this reason. In fact, um, from the, right from the beginning of the chapter, for this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of, of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. What is the reason? Well, it is the reason of the gospel. The mystery that's made, made known to him by revelation on the administration of God's grace. But what's the reason? In verses 7 to uh, 12 of same chapter, of this gospel, he says, he affirms, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church and the manifold, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, 
in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It is for this reason that Paul anchors the prayer we see here. Um, He anchors it in doctrine. So look at verse 14, chapter 3. For this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Paul breaks again into prayer and praying that we're looking today. And he does so in such a seamless, interdependent way. In the way that the disciples in Acts 6, who were already taught by our Lord Jesus Christ, insisted that they were called to do. Acts 6 um, verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. This interdependence, prayer and the ministry of the word. Is it then any wonder that two verses later in Acts chapter 6, verse 6, it would say that the word of God increased and the disciples multiplied greatly? That in this working of prayer and the ministry of the word. And so we see Paul here pray that the Ephesians will be strengthened by the power of the Spirit, so as to know Christ in the deepest way. He's speaking here of this empowering fortification of the Spirit in the knowledge of Christ. Paul prayed this prayer for himself as well. He prayed it in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, when he exclaimed that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That I may know him. I thought he did. He was the one who had some of the most dramatic experiences with God. And yet he's still praying the prayer. I need to know him and to press further into knowing him. I'd like to look at, by God's grace, three moments of Paul's praying here that we find um, in our text. I'll look at it under three headings. If you want, you could... Perhaps use a classical music reference, three movements, because really three movements of the same prayer with a climax that we shall see. The first one is the power of the Spirit, the second, the presence of Christ, and the third, the plenitude of God. The power of the Spirit, the presence of Christ, and the plenitude of God. The Trinitarian grounding of Paul's prayer here is not, is not missed. Because he prays that the power of the Spirit 
would strengthen our inner man in such a way that we come to a deeper knowledge of the indwelling presence of Christ, in the immeasurable love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and to the intent that we may be generously filled with the plenitude of God. Let's read that, that prayer again. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Ephesians. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with his power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power with all the Lord's people, or together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know his, this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's look at the first one, the power of the Spirit. In the first movement of the prayer, Paul asks for the strengthening of the inner man with power by the Spirit. If anyone knew of the need of God's power, of the energizing of the Spirit right in the midst of weakness and suffering and travail and imprisonment and rejection and sickness, even the threat of death, it was Paul. It was Paul who would exclaim in Second Corinthians 4 verse 16, for which, cause, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. He captures for us this need of the energizing of the inner man. Paul was certainly not shy and not reserved in his conviction and confidence in God's power, in the power of the Spirit. For the very gospel of Christ, he says, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1 verse 16. He understands God's power as essential to the gospel, and in fact, he regularly prays for it. Earlier in the epistle of Ephesians, he had asked that the, the believers would know and experience the incomparably great power for us who believe. In the preaching of the gospel, according to the calling of God, Paul would speak in Galatians 2 verse 8 of the God who was at work. That is, in his empowering activity. I think many times we tend to lose the, gram the grammatical nuance of, of this work. Energesas is used here. The energizing, the enabling. Paul would speak about this, that there is a certain, the power of God was at work both in Peter as well as in him for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Galatians 2, verse 7 and 8. 
he would recognize with confidence in Philippians 2 verse 13 that for it is God who works, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God who actively energizes her energon, the one who energizes within you so that you would be empowered for his good pleasure. Elsewhere, the same Paul is the same Paul who, who we saw glorying in weakness and suffering. He can boast and claim, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens or who energizes me. In our more perhaps technologically developed world, although we, we are surrounded by, by, by energy, physical, all kinds of energies around us, um, all kinds of technological energies. Although we're surrounded by this, we perhaps tend to too easily forget the comparable, if not the deeper reality of spiritual energy. Or put it another way of spiritual power, of God's power at work in us. Paul's prayers for spiritual empowering um, first makes it clear, as he prays for this, he makes it clear that it is the power of God that is in view. He says to be, strength, to be strengthened through his spirit. Unless we think of this power of the spirit exclusively in terms only of more extraordinary visible manifestations of God's presence, Paul in Romans 15 verse 13 would use a similar um, sort of phrasing of the power of the Holy Spirit, but this time with reference to the working of joy and peace and hope. Where he says, Romans 15, 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. If the Spirit is the one who empowers, he does so in strengthening the inner man. This inner man that while the outer man is being, is wasting away, yet can be continually um, vivified. For it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profited nothing. So what we find in, in Paul's prayer at this, at this point, verse 16, I pray that out of, the rich, out of the glorious riches, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. The word kratanoietenai is used here which is a word that we find that finds fairly common usage in the Septuagint and refers to something of the inner qualities of courage and determination and perseverance. It speaks, in fact, to the qualities that identify a valiant man. There's a reference to um, a similar use of the word in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, where we find, be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. 
the Lord will do what is good in his sight. Be strong. He uses the same word in the Septuagint. Or in Psalms 27, verse uh, 14, where he says to wait on the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait on the Lord. Paul would elsewhere use the same word in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, where he says, be alert, stand firm in the faith. Be strong, be manly, be strong. Andriseste. Paul is not at all, I would submit to us, fuzzy on the need to be spiritually fortified. To be strong and to stand firm. He's not at all bashful on the need for the mighty inworking of the power of the Spirit in the Christian life. In the effective spread of the gospel against oppositions. Against the oppositions of principalities and powers. Even more, we see his confidence in the empowering activity of the Spirit. We, if we are empowered, we are empowered in the Lord and in his mighty strength. Ephesians 6 verse 10, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and then put on the whole armor of God. This mighty strength of the Lord in our inner man, in our heart, this is what he prays for. Now, although the, the, um, the emphasis of the letter, of the epistle, is upon the community of, of believers, the family, the, the, the patria, here, Paul zooms in on the deepest individual experience of the Spirit. He would sort of pan out later on, but right now he zooms into this inner man, the Spirit at work that energizes the inner man. I have often um, thought and wondered about this empowering work of the Spirit in the heart of a man. What is it? What is this special unction of the Spirit that rests upon the man who has spent time with God in prayer and in deep communion? This anointing of God that so unmistakably is felt in preaching and and in man's piety. What is this inner working of the graces of the Spirit? That flows out of the heart, out of the life of a believer who's been seized by the love of God. What is this deep preparation of the heart? That's beyond knowledge. These virtues of the spirit. I have no explanatory concept for it, except to say 
that the heart of man is, is deep indeed. <clears throat> it is not only the seat of consciousness and, and of knowledge, but, the deep, but of the deep recesses of our moral life, of our desires, of our dispositions, and the depths in us that we are not perhaps always conscious of. It is the place properly where the Spirit of God leaves indelible traces of his graces upon us. Now he that established us with you in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.22, and hath anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. And so I ask the question, what is the spirit doing to your inner man? And it's my prayer that we will pray for this empowering work and for his strengthening. As Paul continues to pray, we see him, verse 13, give perhaps shift gears a little bit and move into the second movement or the second moment of his prayer. He says, I read the, I read the, um, the verse, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Indeed, the goal of this strengthening of the inner man by the Spirit, the way in which this inner man is renewed and empowered, is in the experience of the presence of Christ. We see in verse 17. It is in the lived experiential reality of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Paul at several junctures, in fact, speaks of this indwelling of Christ significantly, perhaps in uh, Galatians 2 verse 20. We get some insight into his expression, I have been crucified with Christ, and by virtue of that it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We see this indwelling of Christ through our union with him as the basis of the indwelling of the life of Christ. It is to be indwelt, to be animated, to be enlivened by the life of Christ. The spirit of the one that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in us and communicating his life to us. But if, the, if Christ is in you, Paul says, Romans 8 verse 10 to 12, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. May God strengthen us to comprehend the weightiness of this mystery. Little wonder, then, that Paul expresses his prayers in terms of having power to grasp along with all the saints. For it takes a special working of God, a special power to comprehend in the slightest the mighty power of the presence of Christ in us. Paul in this verse doesn't use the same word uh, strengthening. So verse 18, he says that I may have power together with all the saints, all the Lord's uh, saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. The power here, he doesn't use the same word that he used in verse 16, um, referring to strength. But instead, he opts for the verb exisco, which simply indicates being able to. So he says, I pray that being rooted and established in love, you may have power. As some commentators have have shown, the ability or the power here indicated has the further nuance of a growing in power to the point of prevailing. In other words, a progressive continued empowering that overcomes in order to positively result in something. Paul's prayer here is that the work is that by the work of the Spirit in strengthening us, we further grow in this empowering so that we are spiritually strong enough to even begin to grasp, along with the saints, the unfathomable depths of the presence of Christ in us. There is here an irreducible mystery. And there I say, a holy mysticism of the presence and love of Christ in our union with him. This great mystery that I know him and I'm invited every day by his spirit to dive deeper into the bottomless, dimensionless, unbounded riches of his love. That I love him and love his people, but even more importantly, that he loves me. That he loves us. And here we meet a specific focus of Paul's prayer. Because unlike places where Paul admonishes and encourages believers to, in their love for one another, in their love for God, here the focus is on the love of Christ for us. The love Christ has for us. The love Christ has without boundary. The love that we cannot be separated from. The powerful love of Christ that is our comfort in suffering and our anchor in times of trouble. The love of Christ that undoes the very sting of death. Our assurance and hope in this life and in the life to come. The sweet-smelling savor of knowing Christ. 
It is in this unfailing love, in this unfailing love of Christ that Paul prays that the Ephesians, that we would come to grasp, to take up, to comprehend, to apprehend. And for the Latin speakers, perhaps the, the, um, the, the etymology of comprehend and the nuance therein is preserved because it's, it's comprehend not just as a mental act, but a taking in, a taking in of the love of Christ. That's what he prays that we'll be empowered to grasp, to take in. To understand and to take in in all its fullness. Being fortified, being strengthened, being empowered to take in the presence of Christ and his love for us. Being fortified to be seized, to be enveloped by the boundless love of Christ. Little wonder then that Paul prayed intensely for this empowering presence of God. And we meet the last movement of this prayer after he's prayed for the empowering of the spirit, the empowering of the inner man through the spirit, he prays for, it, for, for the filling, for the, the enablement, the strengthening to grasp the presence of Christ and the boundless love of Christ. He here moves on to a third movement, verse 19, and to know his love which passes knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so our third um, movement is the plenitude of God. It climaxes, this Trinitarian movement of, of the same movement in three moments climaxes in the fullness of God. I'm brought to ask myself, What will ministry look like? What would our church life look like? What would fellowship look like? What would our day-to-day interactions look like? What would our testimony of Christ and witness to the world look like if we were truly filled and constantly being filled with the fullness of God? Think on that for a moment. If God empowers us by his spirit out of his glorious riches and shows us the loving presence of Christ without measure, he gives us of himself in fullness to be filled with God. Stephen, it was said of him, in Acts 6, was what a man full of God's grace and of power. So this fullness, being filled with God. How can the boundless be measured into the bounded, into the limited? It certainly cannot. But it means that in our limited measures, we can always be filled to overflowing. For we are not to be filled with wine, as we're told, in excess, or wherein is excess, but to continuously be filled 
by and with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18 Not only that, but the Spirit at work in us strengthens our capacity to receive of God as he works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This, brethren, is the prayer. This is the spirit of Paul's praying for the power of God in the lives of the Ephesians. This is my prayer for us. To be strengthened by him for his glory. And please allow me once again to finish off by praying this prayer again. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you, that he may strengthen us with power through his Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that us being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.